Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm thrilled to share this episode with you today. It's one I've been hoping to have for a long time. My guest is Greg Exthalis. He is General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Multicoin Capital. He is on the board at the Association for Digital Asset Markets and on the board of the Fordham Law Alumni Association. Greg is also a senior lecturing fellow at Duke Law, where he co-teaches blockchain and fintech law and policy. Greg, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks. It's a thrill to be on. I am a, what's the saying, long-time listener, first-time caller? Uh, Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me. It's really a pleasure to have you on. And I thought we could start at the very beginning. That is your Genesis block. Where were you first introduced to Bitcoin? And we spoke a little bit about this before we started recording, but I'd love to hear more of the story on that. Yeah. So I've been practicing law for, it's actually pretty terrifying. I'm coming up on 20 years somewhat soon. So I think I'm about 10 years of sin. And for the last 10 of them, it's been in the cryptosphere. And by trade and training, I was a funds lawyer, particular focus on registered funds, typically referred to as exchange-traded products in the U.S., also some mutual fund work and a decent amount of private fund work. But my mentor was the woman who basically invented the legal side of the ETF industry. And as a result, the work we would get would tend to be exotic things, a lot of different types of precious metals trusts, novel ETFs that required unique exemptive relief from the SEC. And that basically pushed the first Bitcoin ETF to us. And we were hired in December of 2012 to figure out how do we take this weird esoteric new asset that at the time had appeared in mainstream media only once in a Wired article about the Silk Road. And how do we you know, first assess that, try and create a financial analysis and risk framework, a regulatory analysis of that, and try and package it as an investable product for investors through an exchange-traded product format. And the ETF industry itself is not particularly well understood, both for 1940 Act vehicles and for non-security vehicles. We can maybe talk about that later. But that was what we did a lot of, and we were hired to try and bring a Bitcoin product to market. And, you know, I look back and glance down at my watch and see we're 10 years and one month later 
from when I started working on this and we're still not there with the best and simplest product, which is modeled on a product called GLD, which is the Spider Gold Trust, which has been around for you know well over 20 years now and was the the model for what we tried to do with, with the Bitcoin Trust, with the Winklevoss Bitcoin Trust. And so during those initial conversations where you're trying to wrap your head around Bitcoin, what did that look like in terms of the types of conversations you had and the considerations under I believe it would be that Investment Act of 1940. Yeah. So it was interesting because a lot of it was absorbing knowledge. And that was one of the great parts about my job as an exotic fund lawyer is I got to constantly learn. And it's something that I think prepares all of us who focus in the area of what one might call crypto law, which is not itself a body of law, but an industry, is we tend to all love absorbing information consuming it, trying to analyze, analogize, although many would warn against analogizing too much. But it was one of the fun things about my practice pre-crypto was we still did a lot of that. We had weird products, whether it was you know the structure of a fund, a fund or the subject matter of the fund, where you got to learn a lot. And really, that was my job for about six months. We worked for six months and a couple of weeks before we did our initial filing on July 3rd of 2013. And it was a deep dive into understanding what this asset class was, what this community was, which at that po- at that point was still largely dedicated to cypherpunk mailing lists, a lot of people who entered the space for libertarian or sometimes referred to as crypto-anarchist type of, of rationales and worldviews. I think that's probably a little bit of an extreme term on crypto-anarchists, probably pretty much more libertarian. But you had this cadre of either computer scientists or people who had almost a political motivation and some people who had an economic motivation in the space, but there wasn't a good explanation of the space. And from a legal and regulatory perspective, the first really good and comprehensive piece was actually a law firm, rather a law journal article written by Ruben Grinberg, who's now the the general counsel at NYDIG and or NYDIG. And Ruben, who then was still a law student at the time, went on to, to Davis Polk and then to Nydig wrote a fantastic survey piece, which was, it's funny because here you are trying to operate at a high level at a law firm and one of your primary secondary resources is a law student's article, but it was the first thing and one of the important building blocks. But we had to do a lot of primary research, which included going down the deep dark corners of bitcointalk.org and the Reddit, the Bitcoin subreddit, and a lot of technical reading, which for a lawyer who the only Java I speak is Starbucks, it involved making sure I understood the technical components, the economic realities of the ecosystem, how things functioned, who the participants and players were, and then be able to construct and write appropriate risk disclosure, which is still pretty pretty self-complement because we did a pretty good job of identifying. Obviously, back then, Bitcoin was very much so focused as an asset transfer, potential future store of value, but really a medium of exchange payment system. The world exploded with with additional applications, particularly after the launch of Ethereum. But even in, in the Bitcoin world, there were additional applications that layered on. So a lot of that work early on was really 
learning, understanding, meeting people in the space and trying to then map out, okay, what are the arguments we could make to not just the SEC, but also to the IRS, the CFTC, and the various money trans, various different regulatory bodies that touch the space. And when we eventually filed in, in July of 2013, the only government agency in the world, other than a couple of prosecutor, prosecutorial offices, the only government agency in the world that, to the best of my knowledge, uttered the word Bitcoin was FinCEN when they released their May 2013 initial convertible virtual currency guidance. So it was a pretty fresh slate, a tabula rasa, if you will. And a lot of the work we did early on, we didn't get an ETF launched or an ETP launched, but a lot of the early work we did helped set the framework for US and eventually global regulation of crypto assets in a way that I think did achieve the goal of bringing it into the main street, the mainstream. And one thing that always fascinates me when it comes to the dynamic between the law and crypto, where there seems to be some form of tension typically, but is the whole idea of disclosure. And since the 33 and 34 Act were enacted, we seem to have gone from an I'm quoting Gabe Shapiro on this, but a disclosure regime to a permissioning regime where now you have to go and sort of beg for permission and explain why you deserve this privilege as opposed to it being a right that you can form some sort of financial related instrument or issue security, et cetera, have an exchange traded product. When you were going through the disclosure for something like this, what were some aspects that you would have included? I haven't had the chance to review it myself, but what were some of the disclosure parameters that you would think about? Because I can imagine the risk factors here were very novel, especially when you're comparing it to something like a gold trust. Yeah. And it's funny because we did very much so intentionally base it on the gold trust and a lot of our disclosure started from some of the more recent precious metals trusts that we worked with because we analogized Bitcoin to being something that is most similar to a physical commodity, particularly a precious metal. But when you're building out and it's somewhat unique for precious metals trusts or managed futures ETPs, where you're basically doing an IPO of both the asset and the underlying market. So our disclosure then first had to be very conscious of how do we describe this technology correctly? How do we describe the risks in how it's engaged with? This is, you know, things that are simple, like what are the types of platforms that it trades on, which at the time were things like Mt. Gox and Bitfinex and BTCE, but also, you know, what is public-private key cryptography? What is the law of very large numbers, which isn't obviously an actual law, but I really posit that the law of very large numbers is, or is that humans are very bad at understanding when numbers get very large. And throughout that first initial process of several months before we filed, I think I had probably three or four aha moments where I said to myself, oh, I really didn't understand it before, and now I get it. I would argue that I've probably had several more of those moments over the last nine years years as well. But the trying to describe the risks of assets that are controlled by private keys, trying to, under, to understand and describe the risks that are inherent in transactions that are largely irreversible. You know, we one of the areas of law that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, but which I view as sort of the sort of Damocles 
in US regulation that hangs over our industry is Regulation E, which is something that was thought a lot about in 2012 and 2013, and not so much about now. And Regulation E governs the what's called electronic funds transfers, EFTs instead of ETFs, if you will. And a lot of those are consumer protections that companies must put in place when they operate payments vehicles. We didn't know back in 2012, 2013, a great person to chat with about this particular issue is Patrick Merck of Transparent Financial Systems, who is a former of the Bitcoin Foundation, and I always argue the original crypto lawyer. He was doing virtual currency law before crypto was a thing. And Patrick likes to talk about you know, not knowing how, the, how FinCEN and the CFPB were going to think about and apply Reggie to the digital asset space. It turns out they, they chose, took the position that it doesn't apply. But trying to map in the risk factors, both the operation, the description of the market, and how these various alphabet soup of US regulations would apply to, to Bitcoin and Bitcoin markets in the future, as well as the fact that it's a borderless technology, which also has to think about, you know, the laws in other jurisdictions. Your guest last week was Lewis Cohen, and I often like to quote Lewis when he says, they got laws there too. And we tend to sit here in in North America, and particularly in the US, and think about the laws we work with every day, but this is an inherently global technology, and it, we don't live in a vacuum. So right. trying to consolidate all of that into a, a an S1 registration statement, which is typically designed for an IPO of a company, and for which you typically have very clear guidance and expectations on what type of disclosure will be included is a little difficult. And we ended up with, I think, probably about 30 pages of risk factors in, in our initial draft, which is probably pretty consistent with the breadth of risk disclosure now. But it was quite amusing to me because of all the registration statements I'd ever read, written. I think this was probably the first one that that people actually read outside of the staff at the SEC. Right. And that must have been such an interesting period when when you're navigating something like that. I find these days it becomes much easier because crypto Twitter, for example, is so much more built out. There's so much more discussion, so many more lawyers in the space. Back then, I don't believe you would have had that luxury. There were, like you mentioned, there was a law student paper that you started with. And from there, it was a lot of almost archaeological digging through subreddits, through forums, through websites to try to wrap your head around what really is a complicated technology. So when you think about where we're at today, and we still don't have a spot ETP in the US for Bitcoin, could you explain the story behind the GBTC? What's really happened to lead up to this? I know that's a bit of a long answer, but feel free to take as as much time as you need. I'd I'd be really curious to hear it from your perspective. Yeah. So GBTC is is a super interesting product. It's obviously the one that's most familiar to to traditional investors for a variety of reasons. And it started, I think, just shortly after or around the same time as we filed for the, the first public Bitcoin ETP. And it took a slightly different take. And I often say that I think there was only one group that would have come up with GBTC as a structure, and that is you know the team at Second Market. Particularly, Anne-Marie Tierney was the general counsel at the time, brilliant lawyer. And one of the reasons for that is Second Market was most famous for being the location where there was secondary liquidity for pre-IPO shares, particularly Facebook stock. 
And that was their business model. And because of that, they understood that, you know, the type of exemptions that allowed secondary trading for otherwise private securities, securities that aren't listed on exchanges. And they built a model to create basically a private version of of GLD and strapping that onto initially their internal secondary market at second market, and then subsequently the interbroker markets run by OTCQX. So taking a step back to understand what I just said, you know, when we think about investing in, let's say, SPIDERS, SPY, the S&P 500 Depository Receipt Fund, which is the first and largest ETF. When we're buying that, we're buying a fund that is traded on the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, or CBOE's BATS exchange. These are national securities exchanges or something very akin to them that are subject to rules under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. There are, however, inter broker markets that allow brokers to trade securities that are not listed on a national securities exchange. And this, I would note, also would include the ability to trade foreign-listed securities that aren't listed on a U.S. national securities exchange. So TSX or up in Toronto or you know the Swiss 6 or what have you. You can use these interbroker systems, the most notable of which is called OTCQX, to allow for the trading of what would be referred to as unlisted securities in the U.S. And with GBTC, and then on top of that, there also are the ability to use exemptions to otherwise trade securities that are not registered at all, pursuant to an exemption under something like 144, Rule 144. There are different standards of disclosures and different standards of, of transferability based on how your securities are registered. GBTC first relied on exemptions from registration to allow secondary market trading, and they subsequently registered as reporting companies with the SEC under the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 on Form 10 to allow them to have their shares more freely transferable traded on OTCQX. And this was all in the background of creating what fundamentally was a shadow ETP. But there are benefits to that, and then there are downsides. Sorry to interrupt, Greg. So yep. Could you describe what's a shadow ETP? Yeah, so a shadow ETP, not certainly not a formal concept, but it basically is a fund that will ostensibly track exposure to an underlying asset and be available in your brokerage account, but not have the full structure of an exchange-traded fund or exchange-traded product. And here's the brilliance of when Kathleen was working with people like Nate Moss to create spiders, my, my, my mentor, they created spiders and GLD. You don't typically allow funds to trade on the secondary market. The standard fund type is a mutual fund. And in a mutual fund, you are always buying and trading directly from the fund. You're buying shares or redeeming shares. ETFs or ETPs, they allow both a primary market to exist, the creation and redemption of funds, as well as a secondary market to exist, the trading of funds, fund shares among shareholders. Now, 
in the U.S., under the Investment Company Act of 1940, there are a number of securities laws, federal securities laws in the U.S. The ones we think about the most are the Securities Act of 1933, which governs the registration of securities, and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which governs the secondary trading and brokerage of securities. There are also two 1940 acts, the Investment Company Act, which governs mutual funds and investment companies, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, which governs advisors. There are other securities laws like the Bank Holding Company Act and my personal favorite, PUCA, the Public Utility Company Holding Act, which sounds like it should be a Pokemon. The There are a number of different laws. Also, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank would all have components that would qualify under the federal securities laws. Under the Investment Company Act, that's how we govern pooled vehicles that invest in securities. And when we have an ETF, it touches a lot of these different federal securities laws. But the most basic structure for a fund is a mutual fund where you're buying and selling directly from, from the fund. Under an ETF structure, you have to account for the fact that under the Investment Company Act, shares must trade at NAV. That is a very important comp component. And when Kathleen was working to get approval for the first ETFs and the first commodity ETPs, GLD in particular, one of the biggest concerns was, okay, if we allow a secondary market in this share, how do we ensure that the secondary market price is tied to the net asset value of the fund? And this, mind you, we'll obviously be getting to in a moment because that's the crux of the big question about GBTC. These days. And the way it worked is they came up with a very elegant system, which is often called the EP arbitrage mechanism. Certain large broker-dealers for an ETP are allowed to create or redeem shares directly from the fund. And then they sell those shares into the secondary market or buy those shares from the secondary market. And what that does is these large broker dealers, folks like you know Jane Street or Goldman or what have you, will, will look to arbitrage the secondary market price against the net underlying net asset value. If the price of a share is trading too high in the secondary market, you know, they will go and they will buy, create additional shares with the issuer and sell those into the market to capture the spread. And if a share price is trading at a discount in the secondary market, they'll go into the secondary market, buy up the shares, and then tender them for the underlying NAV and do some hedging work to make sure it's a risk-free arbitrage. But what that mechanism does is it mechanically ties the share price on the secondary market to the underlying NAV of the fund. Mind you, it also is the same sort of mechanical economic incentives that we see a lot in decentralized finance. A little bit different in structure, but the same concept that you can build a system where parties are economically incented to operate in a way that maintains the health of the system. Obviously, we're a little bit further along in the ETF sphere than we are in DeFi in developing those ecosystems and proving them out to be true. But with GBTC, they initially attempted to operate a system where they were having creations and redemptions of shares as well as a secondary market, which would allow the prices to tie together. However, the SEC basically came in and said, no, you can't have redemptions while you're engaging in an underlying offering. And the reason for that was that would be violative of rules 101 and 102 of something called Regulation M 
which prohibits issuers and related broker-dealers involved in an ongoing distribution from participating in share purchases, or in this case, redemptions, of an asset that is being actively traded in a secondary market. So it's intended to be an anti-market manipulation rule, which makes sense in some circumstances. It doesn't really make sense from a policy perspective when the quote-unquote share repurchase is a redemption in kind at NAV for an underlying asset of a single commodity fund vehicle. But so that removed one side of this arbitrage mechanism. There wasn't the ability to to engage in redemptions. You couldn't buy shares on the secondary market, tender them to Grayscale in exchange for the underlying Bitcoin and collapse any discount. And there's also another funny mechanism that because the shares were not registered, there was a delay in between when you created new shares and were able to sell them into the secondary market. So this was commonly referred to as the GBC, GBTC trade because GBC, GBTC traded at a premium of 20, 40, 60, 80, at one point, you know, 200% because it was the only way to get exposure to Bitcoin in a brokerage account at the time. And people would buy shares to create shares directly with Grayscale. They would have to hold them initially for 12 months. Eventually that window was reduced to six months when they became a reporting company. And they would try and hedge the position and hopefully be able to sell into the market at a and cap- capture that arbitrage, which at the time was huge. And that arbitrage allowed the all-time creations of Grayscale to be over $7.5 billion of share issuances, dollar denominated at the time of creation. Grayscale subsequently now is, you know, I think it's probably about a $15, $20 billion fund. And at its height was, a, I think, just under a $60 billion fund, which made it the second largest commodity fund in the world after GLD, which is a remarkable statistic. But throughout that growth, there was sort of an endemic problem, which is there wasn't this mechanism to tie share price to the to the secondary market the secondary market share price to the NAV initially people thought okay it's not a problem because it's a premium and that's attractive that means more shares will be created more float will be created the NAV will grow and what have you it becomes a little bit more problematic when we flip to the discount because then there is no ability to exit other than by selling into the secondary market at deep loss and the solution to this which you know, Grayscale has been pursuing to some extent over the course of the last handful of years is conversion true to a true exchange-traded product, which has always been on the roadmap for Grayscale. Because if you convert into an ETP, then you have that arbitrage mechanism. The product starts to function well, and Grayscale goes from being a you know way to, to create an imperfect product that can be available in brokerage accounts to being a product that actually works well and provides investors with the intended exposure, which is exposure to the price of the underlying Bitcoin. Thank you for that explanation, Greg. And it's always interesting how much there is behind the scenes with market mechanisms. And the way you described it reminded me quite a bit of algorithmic stablecoins, where there's an incentive to keep the peg. And that incentive is based on a certain discount or arbitrage that can be seized by traders. And it's fascinating to see what someone, how someone could sort of take in that 
that model that exists for the ETPs and then bring that into the crypto ecosystem. Yeah. And it is funny because I, algorithmic stablecoins like Maker more so than algorithmic stablecoins, UST. <laughs> the UST is a different ball of wax because we have collateralization here, but very much so, you know, I think if you're looking at things like Maker and the idea of arbing or capturing a liquidation in a vault, there are some mechanical similarities. You know, structurally, they're a little different, but there are mechanical similarities in how you incentivize by designing the system. So I, I agree 100%. It's, there are certainly parallels between DeFi and, and these structures of, of ETPs that are pretty compelling. And perhaps one of the reasons why, you know, there are a number of ETP lawyers who have found their way into the, the crypto ecosystem. And so based on, you know, what I, my understanding is of the case there, it it seems to be a very inconsistent stance by the SEC to sort of forego approval of this, given that they've already approved BITO, BITO, the ProShares ETF based on a basket of CME Bitcoin futures and other similar futures-based ETFs. And they approve those on the basis of the CME Bitcoin futures having sufficient anti-manipulation protections, which is what you've alluded to. And the CME Bitcoin futures settle on the CF benchmarks Bitcoin reference rate which is composed of Bitcoin spot prices from eight global crypto exchanges. Yet the SEC continues to reject spot ETFs whose NAV would be computed using the same Bitcoin reference rate out of manipulation concerns. Could you help me understand what their argument could be there? Yeah. And so part of this is the law and part of this is policy. And I would actually take us back to 2014 or 2015. There was a, a product called AccuShares, which was a really novel paired shares ETP structure that was very fun to work with and was a really interesting structure. The funds themselves didn't succeed. The structure was novel, transformative, and I hope it does reemerge because it has great potential. But it was a complicated product. And one that resulted in the first instance of an SEC commissioner actually writing a dissent to something called a 19B4 order. So when a fund wants to, to list on a securities exchange, it must get something that's called Rule 19B4 order, which is governed under the Securities Exchange Act. And the particular portion of the Securities Exchange Act that's most critical is Section 6B5. And 6B5 sets the standards for which a exchange may list a product. And the specific standards are that the exchange has rules that are reasonably designed to prevent manipulation of the shares. And this is an important and, which is often seemingly forgotten in the discussion of Bitcoin ETPs, and suited for investor protection. That's not the specific language, but it's the paraphrased good version of it. Prior to AccuShares, the 19B4 process was far simpler. It was a shorter process. It was one where you know you had to identify the basis of how you're satisfying 6B5, but it frankly wasn't that complicated, particularly where you had a futures market in place for a commodity. And those futures markets provide certain regulated oversight. In Bitcoin, there was the question of, 
all of these spot markets operate differently than any other asset we have in the world. Even you know, gold or silver, or platinum or palladium, there is a singular market which sets sort of the global price, the PM fix in London. And in crypto, you have these disparate exchanges that are fragmented and you know, no consolidated tape, no singular global price, only the idea that all of these markets would be arbitraged by folks who could trade. And even then you had, you know, dislocations from that, whether it was BTCE because they didn't KYC. So sketchy people would be willing to sell their Bitcoin there and sell it at a lower discount because they could do it while basically being semi, I don't want to say semi-criminal, but I just said that. They were, you know, Korean exchanges where they had what was referred to as the kimchi premium, which existed because of capital controls where you couldn't get you get the crypto in and out, but the fiat was a harder bit. So you would have a premium that existed there. So you had these minor dislocations. You had Chinese exchanges that operated quite differently, where you didn't have kind of transaction costs on trades. You had instead had friction of trading, withdrawing and depositing your withdrawal fees instead of trading fees, which meant you had fundamentally you know, orders of magnitude higher volume occurring in China on U.S. exchanges. So you had these weird wor- this weird world where there was no consolidated tape, there was no consistent manner of regulation, and there is also the fact that the SEC does not regard money services type regulation, which is how most crypto exchanges are principally regulated. The SEC and the CFTC don't really regard that as the type of financial markets regulation that they would consider as robust. So the market is very different for digital assets than it is for for traditional financial products and in some cases traditional commodities, which usually don't trade as much on the spot basis, but trade in futures markets. But in the 19B4 process, you would typically be able to point to you know, CME futures market existing, and therefore you have some regulatory oversight. And then the SEC having rules, including comprehensive surveillance sharing agreements that would enable the exchange to monitor for manipulation of share prices. And I know Commissioner Person, her dissent to the first rejection of the Winklevoss Bitcoin Trust, noted, and I bemoan often, that with Bitcoin, the rules changed. The standard that existed prior to Bitcoin, and I worked through several complicated 19B4s during my career on different products, the standards that were applied to Bitcoin was largely what constitutes a significant shift. One could even go so far as to say moving the goalposts a bit, but it was a new standard. I would Caveat, that new standard probably started with AccuShares and the existence of a descent to a 19B4 order, but it really changed dramatically. Uh, that, that changed the tone, but the actual practice changed with, with the Winklevoss Bitcoin Trust. And that changed in a few ways. One was shifting where the market manipulation mitigation sits. Traditionally, it was at the shares of the exchange-traded product not the shares, not the underlying market. And so that was a substantial deviation. There also was a substantial deviation in how one established that those rules were in place. And there was a push towards a, if you will, an 
academic exercise of establishing why the futures market was a substantial market in respect of the underlying asset. And you know, it's a complicated concept, one which was addressed you know, in, in a number of different filings, most notably in, in Bitwise's most recent filings. And you know, I will say that the SEC staff that has worked on these products over the last 10 years has put a lot of work into understanding both the Bitcoin market and you know, the rejections are not hand-wavy. They're well-reasoned rejections, but I think the people who have filed and not gotten a spot ETP have le- very legitimate arguments that the standard is not being applied the same as between futures and spot, and it's not being applied the same as to Bitcoin spot products and prior markets that have been sought to be registered in ETPs, and also that they're only paying attention to one half of the 6B5 equation, the anti-manipulation or manipulation mitigation, which, by the way, is not that manipulation cannot exist. It is that there are processes in place to identify, mitigate, and deter manipulation. Clearly, you know, Clearly, crypto markets include instances of manipulation, particularly on microcap tokens, less so these days on, on Bitcoin or Ether or Solana or what have you. Clearly, though, there is manipulation that takes place in bad actions. Clearly, there is desire to have centralized markets that, that are controlled be subject to comprehensive regulation. I don't think anyone wants anything other than that. What we do also want is, though, that, that there be fair opportunities and that the industry not be squashed or denied those simple opportunities. And here's the crux of my problem with the policy decision, not the day worker, not the line workers who have put a lot of thought and reason into the Bitcoin ETF application process, but the policy decisions that have prevented one from coming to market is it would protect investors. It creates the opportunity to get exposure to an important asset class, which is legitimate asset class. No one denies that. Through a product that has the types of disclosures that you would expect and desire, exactly what the SEC says they want, but instead they're driving it they're making it impossible to get that exposure. And then they've turned around and provided a 1940 Act fund, futures fund and a 1933 Act futures fund, neither of which are equivalent products to a true spot ETP. There is a reason why gold futures funds that aren't levered don't compete with GLD. It's because a spot commodity trust is a more efficient, more fair, and better product for a number of reasons, including backwardation and deterioration in in the price of, of futures as they roll for tax reasons and otherwise. And the arguments to allow for futures ETP, as you noted, based on the same underlying market prices. And if you're saying that the underlying markets are too manipulatable for a, a physical spot ETP, but perfectly fine for a product that trades in futures, because you have this filter of a futures market that is being traded in, it's a disingenuous argument and not a particularly compelling one. But the other part of it is this investor protection side. And I won't say that 
what's happened with with GBTC, which there are ties to the collapse of Three Arrows Capital, there are ties to the collapse of BlockFi, both through what was referred to as the GBTC trade and over-levering in that process, but also to the fact that there are 850,000 shareholders of GBTC who have seen a discount plummet to up to 50%. You know, the SEC, if they want to protect those shareholders, should do what is right, which is allow for this product just as you have allowed for every other physical precious metal spot ETP to go through. But at the same time, there are structural decisions from Grayscale that have brought us to this scenario. And that is is something that is not the fault of the SEC, even if I want to criticize them for for their inaction on letting letting particularly my former clients through. <laughs> Thank you for that explanation, Greg. And I appreciate the depth in which you spoke because I find it's easy to just give a high level overview, but really digging into the specific nuances of how the process works helped me and I'm sure everyone listening understand a bit better where there's potential and where there's potential risk and how a middle ground can be reached. Because I completely agree with you in that from a consumer protection standpoint, it's a lot easier and better for me to buy gold through a particular trust than it is to buy physical gold stored in my house. Like now there's all sorts of security risks when it comes to that. And it's the same thing as well with Bitcoin, where now you're leading people to custody their private keys who might not have experience, might not even want to, because that's the way that they think they'll get exposure. And so it, it really, if the goal is, you know, I understand consumer protection is very important. And if that's the goal, I think is looking in the mirror and thinking what will be the second order effects of these decisions is an important thing to do. And we've talked a lot about spot ETPs and that. So I'd love to shift gears slightly and talk a bit more about your role. We haven't really talked about you too much. So I thought we'll talk about you a little bit in your role with Multicoin. I know it's policy and regulatory focused. I'd actually love to hear how you approach that and what the day-to-day looks like given the challenges that the industry faces, particularly in 2023, which feels like the year where we're going to see regulators and government and legislators make some big decisions. Yeah. So in, in my role, I've been at Multicoin now for a little over a year and a half, and I wear several hats in the GC and CCO role. I'm a day-to-day fund lawyer, a day-to-day deal lawyer, a chief compliance officer, and we try to do everything at top of class from an operational perspective, from a regulatory perspective, from an investment perspective, and from a thesis perspective. So we put a lot of effort in, work a lot. (laughs) The day starts early and ends late, but when you're working in an industry where you really love your work, it gets a lot easier. Probably the part that I enjoy the most is the policy and government work. Because I think for all of us practicing law in this space, you know, we're, we're somewhat inventing the industry as we go along in a collaborative way with regulators, policymakers, and legislators. You know, it's not simply, in some cases, it's how do we fit this new asset class and the new ecosystems that throw off, are thrown off by the technology? How do we fit it into existing regulation, rule law? And in some cases, the answer is we need new. We need new laws. We need new regulation. It doesn't work in the existing way. And one of the challenges is as lawyers and as even on the business side, as as people who are trying to explain or sell a, a product, you typically work in explanation by analogy and reasoning by analogy. 
That's very dangerous when you have something that fundamentally shifts intermediated systems or trusted systems to disintermediated. Disintermediated may be the wrong word. Systems without intermediaries and systems without trust. It doesn't work particularly well, particularly because our entire Western financial markets regulatory system is you know, 80, 90 years of regulators working to identify the parties who are in a position to see the total landscape of economic activity and ident- sit in between, have certain responsibilities, whether that's disclosure, market oversight, reporting, or in some cases, settlement responsibilities. And you tag them as the parties who are responsible for certain regulatory obligations or legal obligations. That works in traditional financial markets because in traditional financial markets, that was the way you make them scale and that's the way you make them function. You have a centralized party and then you only have to trust one party. In digital assets, you are shifting from a world where you're looking at contractual rights against a party versus programmatic powers within a system. And that distinction is is robust. And it's one of the reasons why we don't need centralized intermediaries. Now, you could step back and say, oh, you still have centralized parties. You have validators or minor mining pools who are processing transactions and making sure everything goes as it works. Or you have you know, labs, companies that are helping drive software development, hopefully in a decentralized way. But you, know, you can say all those things. But when you actually look at not all, but... So, sort of the core financial or commercial primitives that are being built on blockchain-based networks, we're talking about systems that don't look like what occurs in the corporeal world. The ethereal world is programmatic, and I'm not a code-is-law person, but that is code. I do love the law of code, but I'm not a code-is-law person from a legal perspective, but it is code-is-power from how we interact with parties. And that creates a friction. And so in some cases, what worked previously is not going to work here. It's one of the reasons why, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is the need to take a deliberate step when we're thinking about regulating or developing policy or legislation around DeFi. And at the same time, there's an important opportunity to capture legislative action and regulatory action around that which we do know how to address now, which is large centralized parties. We should have legislation governing how we regulate large exchanges And there are a number of proposals that have gone out there. The DCEA from Representative Emmer's office, which was also folded into the Responsible Financial Innovation Act from Senators Lummis and Gillibrand. We have the DCCPA, which takes different tact from Senators Stabenow and Bozeman. You know, there are other proposals, you know, certain regulatory, certain bureaucratic agencies would like to grab control over spot markets. I think also there's an importance on identifying centralized stablecoin issuers and figuring out how to handle them. Those are things where we actually do know how to regulate those parties because they look like traditional financial services companies. But what we have to be careful about is making sure that we're thoughtful educated and deliberate in how we address DeFi, because think about what would have happened if we just snapped back and said, the internet is too scary, or telephone is too scary, 
or any other sort of technological innovation is too scary that we shouldn't address it. Those are those would be catastrophic for our economy and our competitiveness. And I think it's important that we regulate and legislate on that which we can easily do and be thoughtful and deliberate and work with people like the DeFi Alliance and other trade associations to understand and better grasp how we can not only allow DeFi to to thrive within the U.S. in a responsible way, but also make sure that we're allowing DeFi development and all on-chain activity to be imbued with sort of the DNA of consumer protection and fairness that we have in American markets as sort of a core ethic. And I worry that if we push everything offshore, you know, we lose that ability to help guide its control. We lose that ability to maintain technological edge here in North America. Not going to exclude our good friends up north in Canada and the Thank Waterloo you. Corridor. I've got some Canadian blood in me. The, but it's really important for competitiveness and it's important for consumer protection ultimately that we work with that the government works with industry to understand and not simply clap back in fear. I agree. And those are so many great points you raised there, particularly when you look, and I know, you know, it's important not to always reason by analogy, particularly in crypto, but when you look back to even something like automobiles, speculation occurred much earlier than when highways were built or even traffic lights. And there's so many comparisons between what we have now with crypto, where it allows you to move value in a way that was never before possible. And automobiles where, yeah, sure, you could send, you could take a horse and carriage or a buggy ride somewhere, but you didn't have this ability. And when people complain to me, oh, it's all speculation, largely it is at this stage, but so was, so were automobiles, so were trains before the infrastructure was built out. And I think if we try to choke it off based on how it's emerged at this stage, it's a dangerous thing. And when you made the comparison to the internet, it it brought to my mind, has there been an example of innovation that has been stomped out in America based on regulation that has gone somewhere else? Because to me, it largely feels like America has taken the lead in free markets, encouraging entrepreneurship and capitalism in those regards. Is there anything that that maybe I might be unaware of? Yeah, I think Perhaps America has clapped back a little bit more on swaps as a financial innovation product invented in the U.S., but you know, contracts for differences largely don't occur here. But you mentioned a point from Gabe earlier that we tend to have a permissive legal structure, and that's true. It means that you can do something so long it is not prohibited by law or regulation. And that has been a core part of why you know, America has often led in, in scientific, as well as investment in education and the sciences and having some of the most robust grant programs and, you know, a very permissive capital structure to allow realization on investment. I know, you know, not everyone would necessarily agree with that last point, but relative to other economies, I think that's probably pretty true. But there is a significant worry that we're clamping down here. And I get it. You know, as an ETF lawyer, you, as a, what's referred to as an Investment Company Act lawyer, a 1940 Act lawyer, you start your process of learning with the 1940 Act Commission reports, which detail all of the myriad abuses that occurred after, you know, the market collapses, where the worst kind of grifts, the worst kind of, of abuses. And those were what spurned, or spurred, I should say, the 
development of the Investment Company Act to regulate mutual funds and the development of the Advisors Act to regulate advisors. Because ultimately, you know, people in financial markets will do bad things. And I think, you know, when you look back and see, particularly I go back to early scams that that targeted Bitcoin users as, you know, as marks, if you will, in scams that were prolifer- proliferated through BitcoinTalk.org back then. And particularly, I'm thinking about Pirate at 40's seminal Ponzi scheme that was that led to Judge Radcliffe's, sorry, Judge Rakoff's determination that Bitcoin is money for the purposes of Howie was the trend and shavers case. Or pardon me, that was not Rakoff. That was a magistrate judge, Amos Mazant in Texas. But the you know those things targeted crypto users because they're easy it's easy to separate someone from their crypto and we see that today in people pretending to be cz replying to tweets saying wow binance giveaway all of those things happen and we do have you know a proliferation of bad actors in the space and scams that's not unique to crypto it can seem scary because crypto seems unregulated, I would argue it's far less unregulated than people would say, and it's actually also perfectly regulated by code. The But just because something new results in some bad actors doesn't mean you kill it with fire or nuke it from orbit. You instead try and take do the work to understand what's happened and how you regulate the markets where you can actually target bad actors. One of the criticisms of regulation enforcement is not that enforcement is occurring. Since 2012, people have been asking for bad actors to be identified and litigated against. That's not the issue. The issue is ignoring the true fraudsters, supposed low-hanging fruit, and instead focusing on people who are trying to build collaboratively with regulators and deploying resources there. You know, it is not easy to be a regulator, whether on the enforcement side, whether you're at the SEC, the CFTC, the DOJ, or any of the other number of agencies. And I don't want to also ignore ex-US regulators and prosecutors. They don't have an easy job. There's somewhat of a DDoS attack from time to time. But from a policy perspective, Too many times we direct our efforts in the wrong way and don't truly protect people and also have the second component. And for the SEC, investor protection is only one of the sort of core foundational objectives. Another is capital formation and the promotion of good, efficient markets. And there is a legitimate question as to whether or not that's what we're doing. I agree. And I think that goes back to the idea of disclosure. And to me, the path forward will be tied to disclosure because it's so easy to fork a token or a protocol. And to all of a sudden, now you have a new potentially securities offering. And unless it shifts to a more disclosure-based regime with perhaps certain permissions that need to be granted, I, I, it'll be very difficult to see how the industry will move forward in and fit within a regulatory regime. Having gone on Edgar and CEDAR in Canada, it blows my mind that is considered to be the acceptable disclosure. Like you mentioned earlier, like the Bitcoin ETP that you worked on was the first time anyone had ever read something that had been disclosed. And, you know, I completely understand that sentiment. I think it's the same thing across the world because we've heart, we've changed this disclosure into such a regulatory burden. Well, now it's so many pages long and the risk factors are you're potentially naming everything as far as the sun 
collapsing or, or going out of existence because it's like you might as well protect yourself in every manner possible. And I just think the future will be a lot more customer client friendly in that here's what's important. We've organized it for you in a way that's legible and easy to read. So I'm excited to see how that will develop over time. And I think those of us in crypto law will play a big role in that. Do you have any thoughts on that, on disclosure in crypto going forward? Yeah, I think you're right. And we've actually seen in, in the US on in mutual fund land, we saw the introduction of the summary prospectus. And it's funny because it started with, you know, form N1A, which is the mutual fund registration statement, as opposed to S1, which is the operating company IPO registration statement. N1A initially just included a registration statement. And then the registration statement got so bloated with disclosure that they segmented it into a registration statement and then a statement of additional information. And then guess what happened? Both of those got so bloated that they introduced something called the summary prospectus. And guess what? Summary prospectuses used to be like five pages. Now they're 10. And part of that is, you know, not having a concise disclosure regime. And unfortunately, in crypto, we have a very limited disclosure regime altogether because no one can quite agree how can we allow tokens to be launched and sold? And are they actually securities? Are they something else? And that obviously will vary. And, you know, your guest last week, Lewis, would be much better to answer that than just about anyone. But yeah, and I would note also that I take great pleasure in the fact that every Canadian who looks at Edgar says, why can't this be more like CEDAR? And every American who looks at CEDAR says, oh my God, thank God I have Edgar. But we both hate both. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fundamental truth. At the end of the day, it's pretty unbelievable. I remember when I first went on, I thought it was a joke, figured I must have had the wrong website because it looks like it was created in 1995 and hasn't been touched since. And that might not be too far from the truth. Yeah. I'd love to touch, I'd love to touch on mentorship, Greg. And, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about the loss of your mentor, Kathleen Moriarty. And I saw that and you wrote a really nice thread just on, on her and mentorship, which I thought was very really well done. You also tweeted when embarking on your professional career in law or otherwise, there is nothing more essential and impactful than someone to someone willing to invest in you, their time, knowledge, and network. And even just judging by our conversation today, it's clear that Kathleen had a big impact on your career. I'd love if you could describe your relationship to Kathleen and how that developed in the early days. Yeah. So it's it's funny. I was a second year or third year associate when I joined Cadmuchin in New York and Kathleen had joined six months prior to me with her longtime paralegal, Debbie Ferraro. And Lean, Debbie, and I ended up working together for 15 years. And Debbie joined me at Multicoin this June and now works as our legal resources manager. And, you know, it's rare for people to work that long together, but I wouldn't trade it for the world because, you know, when you have someone who brings you under their wing truly as a mentor, not as a tool, not as someone just looking to extract value, which often feels like what it is when you're a junior associate at a law firm. But a true mentor is someone who's so much more than just your boss. It's someone who creates a symbiotic relationship and identifies you as someone they want to bring along and be almost a successor. 
And in some law firm environments, it is a literal succession process where you, you know, basically inherit your old bosses. That wasn't really fully the case with Kathleen and I. She always said that, you know, no matter how many awards they would give her, they'd never convince her to retire. I think she said that after she won the ETF Lifetime Achievement Award from ETF.com or Inside ETF. So the, you know, she was fantastic in that she was so sharing of knowledge and opportunity and was such a brilliant woman. The Wall Street Journal did an amazing profile of her in 2016 and the role she played in launching the ETF industry, doing it also as a woman in an extraordinarily male-dominated micro-ecosystem, the investment company land. And doing it with kindness, you know, there's often a perception of lawyers as sharks. And one of the most important lessons I learned from Kathleen was, and part, I don't know if we're allowed to curse at all, but don't be an asshole is the great lesson. And, you know, you don't owe, zealous advocacy does not mean always trying to maximize the result on every last interaction. It also means focusing on relationships and, you know, building relationships with your clients, understanding that when you're representing a client, you also have to live with the counterparty that you're negotiating against on a long-term basis. Maybe not you as the lawyer, but your client does because they're interacting in, in many cases, not just simply a transactional basis, but a relational basis. And those were really important lessons that, you know, be someone the other side of the table wants to work with and wants to see. Have personal relationships with the people you work with. Understand them. Understand your client's true needs, that it's not just winning this or that in a contract negotiation, but what the long-term goals are that go beyond what's directly in front of you. And I think a lot of those lessons are applicable to any area of law, and particularly crypto law. One of the things that I appreciate the most about our industry, and it's reflected by you know your work with a number of guests who all are part of this community that really realizes that the rising tide you know rises all ships or lifts all ships, I should say. It's a really collaborative community of crypto lawyers who understand that you know if we all work together, we're going to maximize the result, and that even if we're you know, seemingly locked in competition, either for client bases or on particular transactions, we all can advance the ball together by knowledge sharing, by thinking through issues, by just talking and making sure folks have identified all of the key academic exercises. When we look at a new product, it's all like a law school exam. And bringing each other along with the right resources and also having an amazing podcast network, Law of Code, Encrypted Economy, Laura Shin's legal episodes on Unchained, you know, Gabe and Sarah's new podcast. There, there are tons of resources. And the folks who write in public, folks like Mark Boyron and Miles Jennings and Gabe Shapiro, who just put out voluminous work. It's all really important. And then, of course, the people in D.C. and the trade associations who are working to educate, like Jake at Blockchain Association, Miller at DeFi Alliance, the folks at CCEI and the Chamber and Adam. It's really a world where we work together a lot. And there's a lot of sort of communal mentorship in that respect, bringing additional lawyers into the system through LexPunk. And it's really nice to see because we have this ecosystem and this technology that facilitates 
interactions without trust and interactions where you think, okay, this PFP of a bored ape is who I'm interacting with. But on the legal side, we're all friends. We all work together. We all try and learn from each other and we all try and lift each other up. And that's really great. And it's something I don't perhaps do as publicly or as as such great volume as some folks do who do such amazing knowledge sharing. But it's a very important and core part of what I try and do on a regular basis, either with people I work with. I also run the mentorship program at Fordham Law for first years for the Alumni Association there and have had great pleasure also having the joy of teaching my second semester of blockchain law with Linda Jang at Duke Law. And But I think it's something we live day to day and you know just really appreciate all the other lawyers in the space who, who do that and you for giving a forum. That's really important. Yeah. You could probably speak for hours just on how great the legal community is in crypto. The ability to work, collaborate, pick up the phone and ask questions and someone has no problem giving you some, maybe it's not written legal advice, but giving you some ways to think about a particular issue that you're facing, connect you with someone else in the space. It I can't imagine being in any other legal field just because it is so collaborative, so friendly, and so many people are so smart. It can frankly be pretty intimidating when you are beginning a legal career in the crypto space and you just see the plethora of knowledge that is spewed by these esteemed lawyers in the crypto space, not only just limited to law, but technical side as well. And the willingness to get on the phone. Mm -hmm. You know, any lawyer out there who wants to try and understand how securities laws apply to digital assets, you know, you can reach out to Lewis Cohen and you might not know what you're getting yourself in for because he'll talk your ear off, but you've got just a font of knowledge who is this grade A asset-backed securities lawyer who identified this industry, not only because there was an opportunity, because he really identified the industry and together with Angela started DLX before it was quite clear that what, whether or not the crypto markets would explode in interest, but because it's intellectually stimulating. And I think that's one of the core parts of what draws us all to crypto law is we want to be here, not for financial gain, which would be nice, but because it's interesting and we like the people we're around and the topics are fulfilling and you don't mind working a really long day because, hey, it's fun. Mm -hmm. It is. It's so much fun. And it really, it differs from most areas of the law I've found where real estate, and I always seem to harp on real estate, so I apologize to any real estate lawyers listening, but I find there's some areas of law that are so settled, not much novel is coming into the area. And so you're just working within some existing framework, read the books. There's not much room for creative thinking, for addressing very novel issues and trying to fit a whole paradigm shift in terms of how we think about value into an existing framework and hopefully an alternative framework in the future. I'd love to just quickly talk about mentorship. And I love that you run the Fordham Law Mentorship Program because I think as a lawyer, it's so important to have strong mentors and neither of my parents were lawyers. So I didn't really know what I was getting myself into going down this path and having the opportunity to speak with people really played a big role in, in my career. When you're running this program and when you think about mentorship, what should lawyers look for in a mentor? And I think we know the value of mentorship, but it's often not spoken about how to think about if this person's the right mentor for you, when you should be following up with them and sort of 
forcing a relationship. If you were to go back and give advice to yourself, beginning your career, what would you say with regards to finding the right mentor? So there are two, there are two things. It's one, understanding that serendipity plays a lot more of a role in your life than you're ever going to realize. You know, for me, it was serendipitous that I became an ETF lawyer. I wanted to be a hedge fund lawyer and moved to Cadden for that purpose. And I moved in 2007, November 2007, also known as right before the global financial crisis, where hedge fund formation groups become, became hedge fund crisis and liquidation groups. But the investment company work was churning along. So instead of spending 25% of my time working with Kathleen, I happened to spend about 90% of my time working with Kathleen. That was serendipity. You know, being paired with Kathleen, I have a tremendous love of gizmos, gadgets, and tech, but I'm not a coder. So it was serendipity that brought me to Bitcoin or brought Bitcoin to me. And so part of it is seizing on the opportunities that are in front of you where you see something that either interests you or more importantly with respect to mentorship someone who has identified that they're willing to commit the time to you and you know Kathleen had a prior mentor Jonathan Simon who's the GC at Van Eck and I could see and understand the relationship that Jonathan had with Kathleen and Debbie and the closeness and how she brought him along in his career and wanting that for myself was important. It helped that Kathleen just was a lovely person and just a beautiful human being and a kind human being. But the point that I make there is when people make themselves available to you, seize on the opportunity. It may not end up being your ultimate rabbi or you know, full-time mentor, but there are a lot of people in the law who are willing to give of themselves, even if it's just a, you know introductory coffee. And when that opportunity arises, take advantage of it. When we work with one else, it, we actually have about 130 Fordham Law alumni, alumni who have volunteered for this program. And I tell the one else when we orient to the program every year that these are all attorneys that are practicing who have made themselves available because they have a desire to help the next generation. And that when people put that opportunity in front of you, go for it, grab it. And it may be something as a one-time 15-minute coffee or Zoom, or it might be a lifelong relationship. And yes, if you're doing something completely blind, it can be a little more forced and it's a little harder to read the signals. But when someone's putting themselves out there saying, I want to invest some time with you, even if it's just a cup of joe, you know, seize it, learn, make the time because building your network is the most important skill that they don't teach you in law school, but which starts on day one of law school. Uh, my, my, one of my other old mentors, a guy named Bill Trainer, is the dean of Georgetown Law Center. And Bill used to always say at orientation for 1L students, look around at the, at the audience, the people sitting next to you. These are not only going to be some of your best friends for life, they'll also be some of your most important business cohort. You, you're the people who are referring you business or the people to whom you refer business or the people to whom you talk about tough issues. It starts on day one of law school and it starts on day one at a law firm or a corporation or a district attorney's office or wherever you are. And it also starts within your social group. And networking 
is very tied to mentorship. Networking becomes mentorship when you're sort of looking at people who are a different strata in their career. But what you ultimately look for if you're a junior lawyer and you're trying to find a mentor is A, someone who's willing to give of themselves, and then B, hopefully someone who is in the area of law that you think you want to go into and practice in. And you should understand also that it's, it should be a symbiotic relationship. Not all of them will be positioned such that they can be a symbiotic relationship, but at the very least, lawyers often, and certainly myself, love to hear themselves talk. So we even get something out of that 15-minute cup of joe no matter what. <laughs> well, thank you for the detailed answer, Greg, because I find it is such an important thing, and I know how much I've benefited personally from having amazing mentors in the legal community. And it is difficult, but I think if you approach it in that sense where you seize on the opportunities and you're willing to just engage with people who are willing to engage with you, it, it can really lead to some incredible results. Last question I have for you, and this ties, this might tie into mentorship. So maybe perhaps outside of mentorship, are there, outside of finding a great mentor, are there any habits that you instilled either early on in your career, or later on, that really you found helped take your legal career to the next level, or perhaps your personal life or anything that you try to do consistently that has played a big role in your life? I think it goes back to when you're five years old, what are you learning? You're learning to read and write. And regardless of what area of law you're in, or really probably no matter what you know, occupation you have. Reading and writing is the most important skill we have. You know, consuming information is the number one characteristic of interesting people and successful people. Consuming and processing information, you only learn how to process and, and make use of information if you're a serial consumer of it. And then secondly, writing. And it doesn't need to be public writing. You know, I tend not to put out as much public writing or tweet as much as I sometimes like to, in part for its fear of inevitable typos, because I'd need Debbie to, to, to read my tweets before sending them if I want to avoid those. But you know, writing, whether privately or publicly, that's how you synthesize thought. And it's how you make an argument. If you're just doing it in your head, you're never going to get anywhere. So reading and writing as much as possible is incredibly valuable. You'll never be able to map out an argument well unless you actually go ahead and, and put it to paper. Yeah, I agree. And I found writing to be such a great litmus test on figuring out where there are gaps in my knowledge. And so I've tried to write just personally a sort of history of securities regulation in Canada to see where we've come from. And I was amazed at how much I learned from that experience because you see, okay, well, between the 1860s and then 1907, there, I, didn't, I don't know anything, but all of a sudden now it's some different framework. So what happened in between those years? And you force yourself to go through this process of figuring out where your blind spots are and then filling in those gaps, which is so beneficial when it comes to just understanding anything, even if it's law, crypto, regardless. So I think writing, reading, those are such great advice and such an important really reminder for all of us to, it doesn't have to be public writing. It doesn't have to be published in a law review journal. If you're writing for your own benefit, you'll still end up net positive. And also listen to the right podcasts. <laughs>
<laughs> thank you, Greg. And thank you for taking the time. I know I've held you for quite a while, so I will end here, but really am grateful for you for the work you do in crypto and for taking the time today to speak with me. I enjoyed this conversation. I could probably do another hour and a half, but I will let you go here because I know we both have some work to do today. So thank you. Thanks so much, Jacob. I really appreciate having me on. 